Welcome to The Politics of Psychoactive Plants, Religious Freedom, Shamanism, and Sacred Plants, a conversation hosted by moderator J.P. Harpenyi at a Bioneers conference with Jeffrey Bronfman and Jeremy Narby. We hope you enjoy it, and we join the conversation as it begins. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Um, this is a tradition at Bioneers. We always have a panel on uh, entheogens, psychoactive substances, um, and one, you know, we get a lot of static actually about it um, in that there are quite, a, you know, this is a big tent and there are certain people who are not as uh, enthusiastic or open-minded about, about um, some of these things as others, and we understand that, you know, um, but w many of us feel that it would be intellectually dishonest and dishonest in, on many levels for us not to include this topic because in all honesty, many of us in our formative years were opened up to um, a love of the natural world through um, different entheogenic substances. Um, and, uh, it had, and they had a very big impact on many of us. So this does not go to say that these are not um, extremely powerful substances that, that need to be treated with a lot of care. And I'm not advocating use for anyone, but I'm just saying we do feel it's a subject worthy of consideration, and so we, we do do it. And in any case, today's session is a um, Somewhat of a departure, uh, we have two people who are approaching um, th these, uh, this topic of shamanic plant use from, and the politics of, of such use from very different perspectives. Jeffrey Bronfman here has actually been a long, long time ally of Bioneers, and I remember, I think he brought people from the Uniodo Vegetal Church in maybe 92 or 93, but very early on. First time was 92. 92. My memory is not completely filling me that that quincentennial year, so very significant, actually. Um, and uh, Jeffrey is the president of the Aurora Foundation, and he is the uh, spiritual and uh, bureaucratic representative of the Uniado Vegetal Church, which is, he will talk to you about it, but which is a syncretic churches, a church that uses huasca um, as, its as its sacrament, or one of its sacraments, um, here in the States, and it's a Brazilian church, but I will let him explain it to you. What's extremely significant about um, this church at the moment, and the reason Jeffrey's here, is to describe this case that's now in front of the Supreme Court that will be extremely important case, and Jeffrey will be talking to you about that. And Jeremy Narby, most of you know, because he's spoken several times over the weekend and gave a plenary session. He's uh, really one of the most innovative and brilliant thinkers exploring um, the meaning of shamanic teachings and wisdom in the modern era, and really trying to synthesize it and um, arrive at a an understanding of how Western science and traditional indigenous wisdom uh, correlate and don't and fit together. So he's written many great books, and fortunately we've sold out of most of them. But uh, um, one you might not have read is um, Shamans Through Time that he co-edited with um, Francis Huxley, the nephew of Aldous Huxley, um, which is a really great collection of the collision of the Western mind with shamanism over the last 500 years, and of course the cosmic serpent and his most recent intelligence in nature. So these are our two illustrious panelists, and I'll just say one more thing before I turn it over to them. Um, what's interesting about this uh, juxtaposition of these two very different approaches is that both of them combine um, an interest in very traditional ancient teachings and these plant vehicles um, to, to wisdom with an attempt to bring this wisdom into the modern world. Uh, Jeremy in trying to reconcile it with scientific thinking, and um, in Jeffrey's case, uh, really participating in a vehicle that is a way to have people participate in, in the sacred teachings of these plants. So it's a very different approach, but they both have that in common. 
this way of introducing this wisdom into the modern world. And that's not without its problems, as we will hear. So I think what we're going to do is to let each one of our speakers give a short spiel, you know, to launch it off, and then they will engage in conversation together, and then at the end we'll open it up for some questions. All right? And then we'll throw you all out, and you'll have a nice afternoon. All right. Jeffrey, why don't you start? Thank you. I'd first like to check in to just see if there's any members of the press here. If you would, would you please identify yourself? One over here? And what publication could I ask do you write for? Oh, Jane. Uh, never mind. I know you. There you are. Nice to see you again. Um, I just wanted to be able to, to speak comfortably um, here this afternoon and ask that if there are people here who are um, secretly representing any media organizations that uh, to know that what I'm going to be saying today is really intended for the people in this room and not for um, further public exposure because uh, we're at a... We're at a sensitive moment in a very delicate legal process, and I uh, agreed to speak at the request of my good friends, Kenny Osbell and Nina Simons, uh, to this particular group of people at this particular moment. So I, I ask for your consideration in that. And so I had some free time and on the plane and on my travels where I put together a PowerPoint presentation, so I'll just have that going along to give you a little visual entertainment while we're talking here today. My dear friends, companions on the path of justice, and respected community of pioneers. I feel it is a genuine honor and privilege to come before you today as the representative of a nature-based spiritual tradition whose origin goes back many thousands of years. I sit before you today at the gracious personal request of my dear friends Kenny Ozabel and Nina Simons to speak to you of a circumstance in my life that I know is of close personal interest to many people in this network. Sixteen days from today, a legal action a group of dear friends and I brought against the DEA, the United States Customs Service, and the Justice Department of the Government of the United States of America is going to be considered by the United States Supreme Court on appeal. This appeal before this nation's highest tribunal was made by the Solicitor General of this country on behalf of the government defendants I just named, who have lost three times already before every court below that is considered and ruled on our case so far. The case very simply relates to a religious practice that involves the use of a tea prepared from two plants indigenous to the Amazon region. A tea known by the name of awaska, which is the holy sacrament of my religious faith. The government defendants in our legal case have described this tea to the court as a, quote, dangerous, mind-altering hallucinogen, end of quote. For us, it is the very foundation of our connection to the divine and the central and essential element of our religious practice. This sacred tea has been used reverently and safely for centuries. Its consumption has been proven to be harmless to human health. In reality, as Jeremy can explain in even greater detail than I can, it is being used by many Amazon tribes as an agent for both spiritual and physiological healing and has been for centuries. Within the UDV religion, it's used uniquely and exclusively as an instrument for refined mental concentration and spiritual development. In our religious society, which internationally has now more than 10,000 members, 
It is used ritually on an average of two to three times a month, which allows us the direct knowledge of more than 360,000 incidents of people receiving this form of communion in our religious society in every year. This case was brought to the courts by us when the US Customs Service seized a shipment of our sacrament from Brazil and the Justice Department threatened our church members with criminal prosecution. This was now more than six years ago. After 18 months of unsuccessfully trying to reach a given, to reach a legal settlement that would have allowed us to exercise our faith, we were given no other alternative but to seek through the courts what these government agents have refused to grant us, the simple, constitutionally guaranteed right to freely exercise our religion without interference or threat of prosecution by the government. There are, of course, many different aspects of this case that we could discuss here today. For the pioneers who seek solutions for human problems in the wisdom and manifest intelligence of the natural world, there are many aspects of this case I believe the people who have come to participate in this session this afternoon will find particularly interesting. The last time I spoke here, I took up the entire 90-minute session just giving a historical and legal background of the case. In the discussions I had with JP and Jeremy, we decided that it would be uh, more advantageous to have more of an open format of conversation, of discussion, of an opportunity for people to ask questions of what's of greater interest to them that hopefully Jeremy and I could, be, um, could work together to be able to, to clarify and, and address. What I wish to emphasize initially is that this case is ultimately about the freedom of conscience. And it emphasizes aspects of several different social and political conflicts that have been brewing, to use a tea-like analogy, in this country for several decades now. The first area of conflict, of course, is the desire of the Drug Enforcement Agency to interpret the law in a manner that criminalizes an activity that has been the fundamental part of the human search for meaning and religious experience for thousands of years. The second way of perhaps understanding this conflict is as another battleground in the struggle over nature by some who see natural resources as commodities to be commercialized and exploited, and those who see nature as superior to us, whose laws need to be studied, respected, and honored with reverence. To the UDV, the religion that I follow, this tea made from these sacred plants is the doorway to salvation. It opens our eyes to the spiritual dimension and the reality of our existence. It is holy, and in time, it makes us holy as well. It is our belief that its use is beyond the state's authority and articulated right to prohibit. The issue of this case are statutory as well as constitutional. In response to the last case that came before the US Supreme Court back in 1989 regarding the religious use of an otherwise controlled substance, peyote, Congress passed a law reaffirming and restoring this nation's commitment to the free exercise of religion. This law was called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, 
and it establishes a legal procedure whereby if government interferes with an individual or a religion's sacred practice that allows access to the courts, for the courts to prevent the government from acting in ways that apparently they've not understood as beyond their right and beyond their reach. So this is um, what I'd like to say by way of introduction and allow Jeremy to make a few inspired comments as well. Well, this is a kind of a, a special subject and uh, a difficult subject, but I like those too. They just, uh, they're a little bit more daunting. Uh, the first thing that um, I feel moved to say is that um, I found this um, ayahuasca's trajectory in the Western world to be somewhat bewildering because um, I remember being a, a graduate student down at Stanford in 1983 and reading about this Amazonian hallucinogen in a Michael Harner article. And it was, it was the, the kind of thing that only anthropology graduate students would read about. You know, no one else had heard of it. You didn't even know how to pronounce it. Ayahuasca, <laughs> you know. And, um, um, and even though at the time um, I had friends back in Switzerland who were interested in LSD and, and so forth, um, you know, a consuming interest. Um, uh, when I tell them about, yeah, I, I'd be going to the uh, Amazon where these um, indigenous people take ayahuasca, they'd say, what? And that was only 20 years ago. And, um, and then um, I remember getting back from the Amazon. People still hadn't really heard about it. It wasn't out there. Um, and um, by working with indigenous people in the Amazon and trying to bring their message into the world about the, um, the rainforest and their knowledge about it and the importance of uh, working with them uh, to protect their territories, to protect the biodiversity, and their knowledge about it, um, it seemed that um, I, as somebody who'd been to the Amazon, knew that ayahuasca was central in their way of uh, knowing the world. Um, and it seemed central to get their way of knowing the world um, on the table. Um, and ayahuasca seemed to be the, the thing that would be the most difficult to talk about. And I remember starting to do the research on uh, Cosmic Serpent, which led me right, in, right into ayahuasca land. And um, people around me still hadn't really heard about it. I, I didn't think that when I put that book out, uh, it was going to be uh, uh, defined as a book about drugs. Um, and I didn't think um, that it would be um, uh, well, a big success with the the drug crowd, quote unquote. You know, uh, you know. I think actually, if that book has done well, it's because suddenly a lot of people are interested in drugs and hallucinogens and ayahuasca in particular. And ayahuasca became the drug of the '90s. You know, um, so it kind of like jumped out of the bag all of a sudden. 
And then everybody wanted some, and, and in Marin County, and in Germany, and Amsterdam, and so on and so forth. It, it kind of happened really fast. Um, it went from being a, an obscure Amazonian hallucinogen to a kind of a, the drug that was fascinating the world in a, a decade. So um, that's a pretty uh, unusual uh, trajectory. Um, and I guess it's kind of fitting that ayahuasca's trajectory should be unusual. Um, the, and the, I've ended up becoming, you know, uh, somewhat of a, a so-called expert on ayahuasca. Um, you know, but in fact, I really don't consider myself that way because uh, if ayahuasca teaches anything, is humility and you don't know nothing, you know. Um, and I should be clear to you that um, I know next to nothing. <laughs> and you can clap if you would like to. <laughs> um, so, anyway, um, but then finally I get these occasions like this microphone and let's talk about it. So, okay, I'll. I'll give you um, the, the little that I know about it. And I think the thing is that ayahuasca is both a, a beautiful tool um, to explore um, the um, antipodes of the human mind, as Benny Shannon has put it, um, a very powerful tool, a spectacular tool. Um, and it's um, also something that can be used to uh, dominate people and cause harm. Um, and there's something funny that uh, is operating, which is that the, um, in the indigenous context in the Amazon, it is clear for everybody that ayahuasca and what goes with it is um, fundamentally ambiguous, that it's got a dark side. It's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a power tool, and it can be used for good or evil. And in fact, if you look into the concepts of indigenous shamans, good and evil aren't separable. Um, I'll get back to that in, in just a second. I think there are two really key books uh, for uh, looking at these two sides. Uh, the first side is the book by Benny Shannon. It's called The Antipodes of the Mind, Charting the Phenomenology of the Ayahuasca Experience. It was published in 2002 by Oxford University Press, and it's a, probably the most serious scientific study of uh, any hallucinogen. And, uh, well, Benny Shannon is the one who compares uh, the provinces uh, that one discovers in altered states of consciousness induced by ayahuasca as the antipodes of the mind. And he consider us, considers us to be like in the 16th century when European explorers were starting to map the rivers of the American continent. Um, and what he proposes essentially is an outline of the, uh, of the continent. Benny got in that canoe and paddled around the ayahuasca continent for us. And um, we should be grateful. Um, Oddly enough, in uh, Benny's book, actually the whole dark side gets um, kind of, he doesn't really deal with it too much. Because um, he's looking at it as a kind of a positive tool, which it also is. Now there's this other book, 
It's, it's called In Darkness and Secrecy, uh, Assault Sorcery in Amazonia. It came out in 2004. I think it's Duke University Press. And it's uh, Whitehead and Wright who uh, compiled it. It's a collection of texts. And it's by a, a bunch of anthropologists who have pointed out that when you know the detail of, uh, uh, well, uh, tobacco and ayahuasca and datura shamanism in its indigenous context in the Amazon, it's also all about assault sorcery, um, which is rather different from the, the uh, uh, personal growth movement in New Age circles. Um, and um, they point out that there are two key elements in the Amazonian shamanism that somehow get lost in, in the translation which is uh, blood and tobacco. And these are just, you know, the blood is, is in the attacks and uh, tobacco obviously, you know, has some bad press around here. But uh, it's right next to ayahuasca. This idea that there'd be ayahuasca and then tobacco somewhere else in the indigenous Amazonian context, which is where ayahuasca and tobacco come from uh, as plants, um, they are next to each other. Um, you know, there are some things like uh, when you get into ayahuasca in its indigenous context, um, the first kind of concepts you have to know about are uh, the darts. Uh, darts are what uh, people have inside them when they get ill. Um, darts are what sh uh, shamans who are healing shamans see inside their patients' bodies. Darts are what sorcerers keep inside their own stomachs and summon up through song and shoot at people. And um, dart um, uh, is the same words are used in certain indigenous languages uh, for uh, dart and knowledge and power. The word for knowledge is dart. Um, you still with me? <laughs> Meanwhile, also, and you know, by saying what it's like in its uh, indigenous context is not to say uh, this is the uh, only reference and the only way of understanding it. Um, but I still think that the indigenous context in which ayahuasca was developed and, and used over uh, centuries, if not uh, millennia, um, is a reference. I mean, if you're going to talk about drinking wine, I think that, you know, what the French have to say about it is pertinent. Um, <clears throat> now, so, um, in the Amazonian uh, um, context, ayahuasca isn't a hallucinogen. It isn't an entheogen. It's uh, a tool for uh, communicating with others other species. It's what allows us to uh, get across that frontier that separates us from plants and animals and uh, communicating with them. Um, so, um, now we're talking about the politics of psychoactive plants. That's the, the title of today's uh, get-together. Well, in, in the Amazonian uh, view of things, um, plants participate in politics. You know, we can communicate with them and they communicate with us and, and the political 
uh, sphere, it actually involves um, all the living beings. There's not, you know, it's not like society and politics and humanity stop at the edges of human beings. You know, the humanity applies to all the beings in the world. They are also human. Politics applies to them. Um, and, uh, and actually, they have an agenda, um, a political agenda. The, you know, the plants. Um, so what are the politics of psychoactive plants? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I just uh, put on the table uh, about that, that uh, one uh, shaman, a Nashanika shaman, told me that um, ayahuasca, the spirit of ayahuasca is like an international diplomat. And what it likes to do is to go into situations of conflict and find solutions. So that's pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I missed that last sentence. Oh, yeah, is to go into situations of conflict as a, an international uh, diplomat and find solutions. Um, well, and getting back to um, uh, just closer into uh, human politics, and we could talk further about you know uh, what the plants have in mind and what's in it for them and, and all that. But um, so human beings, Westerners are taking ayahuasca. Do you have any advice for the Westerners who are taking ayahuasca? You know. Um, <clears throat> well. My colleague Francis Huxley told me that the world is beyond taking advice, so, you know, forget about it. Um, but nevertheless, um, I think that uh, we uh, cannot uh, say, I haven't heard said often enough that uh, ayahuasca is a very powerful uh, tool and um, it's it's too strong to be used alone. Um, it needs a harness. It needs people who know how to administer it. It's not like psilocybin mushrooms. You can't just stay home, swallow a few, put on a record, and you know, answer the phone if it rings. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, <clears throat> um, it's not like smoking a marijuana cigarette. It's deep water. It's like taking a powerboat out onto the ocean. And, um, you know, uh, my uh, advice uh, would be, well, first of all, if you're going to get in that boat, make sure you're with a pilot who knows how to drive it. Because um, actually, uh, I think that what you're doing when you take ayahuasca is uh, you're entrusting your psyche, you're putting your psyche in, in somebody or some situation's uh, hands. I think it's also important, this is my opinion, um, uh, to pay attention to who you drink with also. Um, and actually there's something, there's something, you know, there are groups of people who go down and, and take ayahuasca and often these people don't know each other. You know, and they pay a certain sum, and they get together, and they all meet. And but actually, um, drinking ayahuasca with people you don't know, all kinds of things can happen, and people can. It's it's not a it's nothing. Um, it's not innocuous or or something neutral. 
Um, and actually, if you look at Benny Shannon's book, that he actually does, I said he didn't talk about the dark side too much, it's a little bit uh, uh, telegraphic putting it that way, because he, he shows, there are all kinds of, Benny has charted this continent, and um, you know, he points out, uh, it's, a, it's a very detailed book. For example, one of the many things that he discusses that happens to people um, uh, when they drink ayahuasca is they can become overgenerous. You know, and suddenly you're, you, you say too much to people you don't know, or you give to, too much to people you don't know, or, you know, these kinds of things can happen because it touches you so deeply. Uh, and I think that if uh, you're going to be uh, opening your, your heart and your soul like this and kind of putting it uh, on the line, it's good to know uh, the kind of things that can happen to you. It's like if you're going to learn how to drive a car and go to driving school, you've got to learn about, you know, the powerful tool you're, you're driving and what can happen. Yeah, I'd like to just pick up. I like the shift that he made in terms of the, the politics of, of what the plants perhaps want to communicate to us. Because I think when I first came into this area of human experience and study, that was really what drew me in. I was, um, I'd worked with a foundation that was involved in environmental preservation. And I had come to the conclusion that the best hope for the environmental um, restoration of the world lay within the cultures of people whose politics, whose spirituality, and whose day-to-day -day life was interwoven with the fabric of nature. And I was aware of um, cultures of people throughout this continent that used plants as the foundation for divination, as the foundation for um, healing, as the foundation for hunting, as the foundation for um, their entire lives. And I felt that the possibility for environmental um, renewal, restoration, conservation in the Amazon region lay within the cultures of people whose lives depended upon the knowledge that they had from, from the plant realm. And so when I, um, I had had the opportunity of traveling among indigenous cultures, um, largely peyote using cultures in, in Mexico and, and uh, different parts of Central America, when I became aware that all throughout this uh, hemisphere, in reality, there is an ancient history of the use of plants within the context of spiritual divination and healing and cultures that were largely based and formed around the songs and the dances and the ceremonies and the communities that were informed by the visions and the insights that these plants gave. And I feel that this movement that Jeremy described of this trajectory that really has been remarkable, you know, in, in 10, 15, 20 years, you know, of, of the, the number of people that became aware of the, even the existence of this um, this decoction, this tea that had existed for centuries with, you know, very few people even being aware of its existence. And now, you know, in a few weeks it's going to be, its use is going to be considered by the possibly the most powerful, politically powerful tribunal of justice in the, in the world today, the United States Supreme Court. And whether or not, you know, in this country, people are going to be allowed to um, utilize something that comes from the natural world that has the potential to open our eyes and to reveal the, the sacred dimension of life to us. And so I look at it, and this is my own personal theory, this isn't necessarily a teaching of the UDV, but it's, I think it's shared by many people within it, that this is um, a way for the natural world to speak to us, you know, through a language that um, 
in a sense, overwhelms our preconceptions and our reason and allows us to perhaps see nature as nature intended us to see her, with the masks of our own cultural prejudices and illusions um, dissipated, and to be able to see the glory and to be able to see the majesty of the creation and to be able to understand our true place within it. Because one of the other things that I think is a direct, <laughs> one time I was, I was actually in a, in a session that I was um, facilitating and somebody asked, what is humility? And I said, humility to me is the consequence of recognizing your size before the glory of nature. And one of the things that I think that this instrument does is shows you your place. So that as Jeremy was saying, you know, he said that he knows next to nothing. I just felt like, well, I'm sitting next to him, so that must be an acknowledgement that, you know, <laughs> it must be something close to nothing. But I feel the, that that is the, the message that these plants, at this time in our history, what is so necessary is we have gone really far off presumptions that we have made about life that will, if allowed to continue, lead to the devastation of a world that we will return to re-inhabit. And I think that the, in a sense, as I spoke earlier about these plants and their message being a doorway to our salvation, I think that this is the consciousness that created the world with us as a small part of it, trying to speak to us and show us where we've gone off and where we could find our way, our way back to what's true. I just I want to say that I think it's really cool that you took ayahuasca to the Supreme Court of the United States. Well, I... I thank you for that acknowledgement, but I want to be clear, it really wasn't my fault. I, um, what I did was I sued the DEA and I sued the Justice Department and I sued the U.S. Customs Service for their interpretation of the law that said I didn't have the right to practice my religion. As a result of all the legal victories that we've had, of which every court that has heard this case has ruled in our favor, it was the Justice Department of the United States that brought it to the Supreme Court. And I really wished that they hadn't. And I don't, you know, one of the, when we started this session, I wanted to make sure that there were no press here, because I'm not looking for publicity. I'm not looking, you know, to, um, to tell my story. You know, as far as possible, we just really want to be left alone. But come November 1st, I believe that the front page of every newspaper in this country is going to be telling the story about the existence of a religious society that uses these plants from the Brazilian Amazon that open people's consciousness to the divine. And um, if the cat isn't out of the bag already, it will definitely be out by that time. So. I wish the government had exercised greater discretion. We talked to them at one point and said, you know, we really, I don't think it'll be good for you and it's certainly not gonna be good for us for you to bring this to the level where the entire world is, you know, looking at this. But um, they didn't share my point of view. I'd like to um, steer the discussion a little bit um, in the direction of difficult issues because I think it's more interesting if we, if we get in, it's my job. To create trouble. That's why they keep me around pioneers to bring up the dark side. But um, <laughs> it's interesting in that what Jeffrey um, is involved with is a church, a small group of people, a few hundred people, which is a vehicle, but a contained vehicle in which these teachings are, you know, in a sense, shepherded or nurtured by people who have a lot of experience. And Jeffrey's talking about indigenous use, which... Um, Jeremy. Jeremy, excuse me. <laughs> um, it's talking about indigenous use. But I suspect many people here are in an intermediary category. 
where uh, obviously a great deal of experimentation has gone on in many different contexts. And I've been hearing a lot of reports about very problematic aspects of that. So knowing that Jeremy knows a little bit about that, I'd like to ask him if, what he has to say about that. Well, I was kind of talking about it a little but bit. But in more detail. In more detail, yeah. <laughs> Concretizing. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, people can get, um, one, one fellow told me, I mean, you know, the problem is also it depends what ayahuasca, and this is something that is also not talked about, and what admixtures are in there, and how many leaves of the Toei Datura are in there, and, you know, um, just a little bit about Datura, uh, to not, not to be too ayahuasca-centric. Um, you know, Iowa, uh, Datura can, is used by criminals. They turn it into a spray, and you spray it into people's face, and you turn people into consenting victims for three or four hours. And, um, you know, you can actually uh, kind of semi-zombify somebody and then say, go home and get your jewelry and your money, and then go and ask your boss for the check and take the check down to the bank and cash it, and then bring it back, please. And people do this, and they have no memory of it because Datura also erases memory. And then five hours later, they, they wake up, and when taken down to the hospital, they have scopolamine in their blood. And so that's how we know that this happens because they don't keep a memory of it. And, but meanwhile, they've gone home, they've taken the jewelry, they've gone and spoken to the boss, they've got the check, and you know. And so Datura turns people into uh, amnesiac uh, consenting victims. Doesn't sound too good, does it? Um, you know, and especially when you add it into the uh, ayahuasca mix, and why would you do that? Because if you're not really an ayahuasquero and you're just trying to rip off some gringos, you uh, take a whole bunch of datura leaves, and yes, it's going to be a mind-blowing uh, brew, unfortunately. You know, and, um, and actually, w when you've taken some bad ayahuasca and you're lying in the gutter in Iquitos, having been abandoned by this huckster who, who blew your brains out with this dangerous plant hallucinogen, it can be uh, deeply um, traumatic, you know, and it can mess up your psyche and your mind and the, the whole business. Yeah. N'est-ce pas? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, you want more? No, that's good. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that Jeremy touches on, you know, really important point, and I think it's important that, that JP raised it, because I do think that in... And although I don't agree with everything that Benny's written, I do think that we're, in some instances, very young and standing before the magnitude of, of histories that go back, you know, uh, centuries, if not thousands of years. Um, there, are some, there are some plants that potentially um, can have harmful effects. Um, I, my own personal experience is that within the context of the um, uses of people who are working for goodness and working with, with a sense of mastery within, for example, the, the tradition that I operate in, um, those risks are profoundly minimized to the point that there is a, a container, as JP was saying, a vehicle that allows people to pass safely and actually have profound and positive life-changing experiences. Um, but in the realm of uh, the shamanic use, there is much more uh, possibility where you really don't know. There was an incident that happened in Canada uh, recently that we were talking about yesterday, which involved an ayahuasca shaman from Ecuador who came up to Canada. And he uh, conducted an ayahuasca ceremony, interestingly enough, on an Indian reservation in, uh, in Ontario in Canada. 
and he, uh, in the course of the ayahuasca ceremony, a woman was, um, a woman died, and uh, he was prosecuted for practicing medicine without a license and criminal negligence. And as it turned out that when the ayahuasca tea that he had utilized and administered in the ceremony was analyzed, it had massive amounts of nicotine from the quantity of uh, tobacco leaves that were present within the ayahuasca brew. And the actual cause of death was diagnosed as being um, nicotine poisoning because of the quantity of, of nicotine that was present within this. And to, to make matters worse after, and this is all part of the court records, you know, after this person was, had already wasn't breathing, um, they called the shaman in and asked him what to do and he, uh, he administered or he ordered to have, her have a, an uh, ayahuasca enema administered to this person who was lying there. So there's a lot of people in reality who are looking to exploit people uh, financially, who are looking to exploit people in different ways and it is an area where there's, um, there is a dark side. Um, and uh, at least in the, you know, and I think that within the, you know, this, this was interesting. I remember I had a conversation recently with a, with a Jewish rabbi uh, who, was t who I was telling about my work and telling him about my uh, tradition and, and how within the context of our religious practice the people are given the opportunity to have direct communion with God. And he uh, kind of reinforced the Talmudic position and his point of view that people aren't ready for that, you know, and that it's the job of the priesthood to kind of mediate between human beings and the divine, and that people aren't ready to, you know, to encounter the, you know, the magnificence or the awe-inspiring experience of the encounter with the Great One. And I think that um, there, is, uh, there is this element. There was a conference that happened um, here in the Bay Area some months ago. It was, it was about awe and the religious experience of awe. And there was a description of um, you know, Moses being on the mountaintop where he received you know, the encounter with the divine and received the Ten Commandments. And part of that encounter was one of bliss and part of that encounter was one of just of awe. And part of that awe, there was a sense of, of terror, the sense of, of finding one's place and then receiving the law in order to be able to go forward from a place of greater humility. So I think that as we look at what these plants reveal, um, there are many dimensions in the spiritual you know, world, and uh, it really helps to have a guide who can help you find your way to, to goodness, to peace. Another interesting question um, is to me is that a, a larger question in our culture is that many of us are uh, adopting spiritual traditions from other, other cultures or combining them. You know, we're a very creative, zestful culture here. Uh, um, and. Uh, that can be problematic as well, and, and one finds uh, a lot of battles between traditionalists and innovators. Um, and I wonder, it's interesting because, in a way, I mean, your church is, is using a very, very ancient um, tradition, but at the same time, it is a syncretic something new. And in the same way, um, you're talking about, it seems very impractical. We are not, most of us, going to be able to practice shamanism in its traditional form. So many of us, the cat's out of the bag, is to quote you. Uh, so. Um, what do you both think about that, and what are some of the, uh, what is problematic about trying to, in a sense, create something new out of something very old, and then translating it into our culture, which is so unhinged in many ways? I think that as you look at the history of human, mystical, and religious experience, that it's kind of an ongoing process of evolution, where different tools emerge, they're incorporated within different cultures, out of it grow greater understandings, those lead to 
greater synthesis and new understandings, and I think it's just part of the evolution of consciousness. So I see it as a, as a positive thing. And, uh, and obviously, you know, within that, I mean, I was, when, um, I want to speak a little bit about the, the legal team that have been representing us, um, who are really, really a wonderful group of people. And one of them was a, a woman who I met at the airport um, on the day after the US Customs Service conducted a seizure at my office and threatened me with criminal prosecution. And I didn't know what the next, you know, if I was going to be put away in prison for decades as a result of, you know, trying to facilitate this religious work. And I had been working with a group of civil liberties lawyers for a period of time, and all of a sudden I was facing criminal prosecution and I needed a criminal defense lawyer. And through some contacts that were made for me, I, I met um, this woman, Nancy Hollander, who's uh, been the lead counsel in our legal case. She works for the firm of Friedman Boyd Daniels in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I met her at the airport, and I really was not at my best. I had just been, you know, honestly terrorized by, you know, these agents of state power and oppression, and I was getting ready to leave the country to spend some time, you know, back in, with my mother. And uh, I met this, you know, petite woman with gray hair, and I came to her and I said, I've got one question for you. How, commit, how committed are you to the free exercise of religion? And she looked me right in the eye and she said, to tell you the truth, I've never met a religion that I feel has done any good for anybody on this earth. And I knew that, I knew that this person certainly wasn't sucking up to me to get a job and that <laughs> I could also trust her to tell me the truth. And so, you know, as we look at, at you know, this issue of religion is also a double-edged sword because I had my suspicions about re organized religion when I came into this as well. And through my own evaluation and my own um, careful study, I determined that this was an organized form of spiritual connection or worship or religion that I felt was one that was worthy of my trust and one that I wanted to identify myself with. But I do feel that there are um, people in the marketplace of religion need to be as careful as in the marketplace of shamanism is the way that I look at it as well. Well, about um, making something new out of um, something old, uh, that's the definition of bricolage. Is one of the, these great French concepts that doesn't have a, an official translation in English. In fact, I think the word has now been imported, bricolage. And um, the anthropologist Levi Strauss made it popular. He pointed out that the spirit of bricolage um, is the same spirit as the one that is behind all indigenous myth-making and, and myth-telling. And uh, myths are, are vehicles for transformation, and they're made to um, stay the same while being told differently each time. And um, another Frenchman, uh, a geneticist called uh, François Jacob, was inspired by Lévi-Strauss. And the more he uh, uh, looked at uh, how genomes work, uh, the more he felt that the spirit of bricolage uh, was also behind, uh, well, how life uh, does things. Uh, life um, takes the old and then builds on it. And, you know, a bricoleur is what Wallace is, Wallace and Gromit, you know. Um, Wallace is always fiddling around in, his, in his, his shack, making something new out of old parts. And um, that is the uh, spirit of life as well. Um, so meanwhile, uh, shamanism is this thing that is the, uh, well, Westerners worked on eradicating it uh, for centuries. 
and uh, <clears throat> by uh, running roughshod over indigenous cultures long enough, uh, in many places, uh, shamanism has been uh, receding and disappearing. But at the same time, it's been reemerging um, right at the core of Western society in workshops and uh, other places um, in a new transformed form. Shamanism is it's, it's all about transformation, and it is transforming itself itself. Um, <clears throat> however, I think that it's uh, important to try to be as precise with words as possible. And I think that if you go to a workshop uh, in Marin County and drum up a storm for 48 hours, it probably makes you a neo-shaman, um, but not a, a shaman, you know? And then it's a question, anthropologists at this point feel like uh, Wimbledon tennis uh, referees and you come down from the chair and say if the ball is in or not, you know? And, um, <clears throat> and um, no, that's out. Um, so, um, okay, so what is a shaman? What's the line? Well, the. Wimbledon rule book, you would uh, want to consult, for example, Alfred Metro, who is a, a Swiss anthropologist who worked in the 30s and 40s in the Amazon. And Metro gave a definition of a shaman, which I think is the simplest, the clearest, and you know, if you want to use one, this would be it. It's a person who, in the name of the community, entertains an intermittent commerce with the spirits in order to uh, heal or to harm. And actually, Metro was one who pointed out that the power of the shaman to heal is the same power as the one to harm, and that it's inseparable. That's another issue. Um, in the definition that Metro provides of what is a shaman, there is the community. It's a person who, in the name of the community, so underline the community. So what's the role of the community that defines the shaman? It's to keep an eye on him or her because the shaman is a fundamentally ambiguous fellow, and the uh, spirits with, which he, with whom he entertains an intermittent commerce are also fundamentally ambiguous. And um, you get knowledge and power from this uh, realm, and these shamans are uh, as shady and ambiguous as power itself. It's uh, double-edged, and that's why you want to keep an eye on these shamans. I would submit that you would also want to keep an eye on scientists. Um, but that's also another, <laughs> another one. Um, <clears throat> now, um, when it comes to making new things uh, out of uh, old, for example, one thing that I would really welcome as a, as a hybrid and a bricoleur and, uh, you know, a friend of uh, free jazz, um, would be to, uh, what about an ayahuasca university run by the indigenous people of the Amazon, where, you know, instead of having a professor of physics, and a pro you could have a, an Aya, a Guaruna Jivaro and a Shaninka Shipibo, you could do a semester with the Shipibo and so on. And, you know, dabblers, you wouldn't even have to be people who are training to be shams, you know, people just, you could interface Western dabblers and bona fide uh, indigenous Amazonians and, uh, you know, make it in the neoliberal market scene. They could pay tuition. It would fund, you know, cash is not necessarily a, a problem. Um, I would be in favor of, uh, you know, it, it's, the demand is out there. The know-how is still there. Uh, I think it would be cool if we... Uh, 
we did a bit of bricolage and brought this into being, though I must say that I don't feel like spearheading it. <laughs> I'm aware of the work of Mark Plotkin, who has actually been doing some of that um, in Colombia, among shaman in Colombia, and he actually succeeded in getting a group of shaman that he had been working with getting accredited um, with uh, degrees in the practice of medicine uh, from university in, in Colombia. So there's um, and then I know John Perkins has, for a period of years, um, been bringing uh, physicians and, and um, scientists down to have encounters with um, shaman in, in Ecuador in order to be able to enlarge their worldview. And so there is this um, sharing of human experience that I think is, is going on in this time. And I think it goes back, at least among the shaman that have been willing to do this for the motivation of the sharing of knowledge and to, for the redemption of the world as opposed to some of the other more um, corrupting objectives that you know, have been talked about. The motivation has really been that they see that unless our world is given, or, you know, the, the consumer society of the, that dominates the, the northern hemisphere is given a, a greater perspective of the value of the ancient indigenous cultures that it's very likely that um, they will, they will live to see um, the possibility of their own extinction. And so I think it's, it's motivated by their own wish for survival that they're allowing some of this ancient knowledge to be transferred to, to people in the modern world. Shipibo uh, Shaman said to me, if, if the world uh, does not take seriously our knowledge, it means that we will die. Um, yeah, go ahead. Again, he said that if, if the world doesn't take uh, our knowledge seriously, then we will die. I'd like to ask one more difficult question and have them each give it a shot, and then we're going to open it up for Q&A. So my, my question is, we're talking about a case in which the Supreme Court is going to rule on this religious, religious freedom issue. Um, and we've pointed out, Jeremy has pointed out some of the, the dangers of this being a very powerful tool. So one question that occurs to me, and this is not just for ayahuasca, but other powerful drugs, unlike something like marijuana, in which I think many of us could feel there's absolutely no reason why it shouldn't be in the same category as alcohol or something, but how does one view such a powerful substance within our legal system? Can we just have it complete decriminalization, or is that too risky for a substance this powerful? And then how then do we view that, that issue? Since this was supposed to be about the politics, not just of the plants, but also of the human society. I think that's very difficult. I, I for one, don't know how to resolve that, but perhaps... I think, you know, that's one of the issues that's going to be resolved within, you know, our legal case. It's, it's one of the issues that's currently in front of the court, is under what conditions, under what circumstances can there be an accommodation? You know, the government is arguing that there could be none, that these substances are inherently too dangerous, and the... Um, there can be no way that they can keep the system of drug control that has been in place for decades and allow people to enter into a religious experience through the use of plant psychoactive substances. The problem with that argument is it's completely belied by the fact that for decades they have been accommodating the Native American church and decades accommodating the, native, the use of peyote, and that for decades that use is distinguished within the controlled substances laws as being non-drug religious, but sincere religious use. So there is already a precedent within our culture, which is where we are looking to direct the court in its judgment that there is the possibility 
that the, um, within an organized context where there's a history of use, where there's trained uh, ministers or facilitators, that there's the possibility, which it, where it's fundamental to the religion, that government cannot prohibit that unless and until they could demonstrate through putting on facts and evidence that there is a real danger. And what, what, where the government has failed in our case was that they couldn't convince the judge of that because they hadn't done any research to prove it because all the studies that have been done on the use of Awaska within the religious context of the UDV have only shown that it's beneficial and positive. There's not been incidents of harm, there's not been incidences of danger, and the courts have looked at it and said, you're alleging all these things to drum up fear, but there's no evidence that you've presented that any of these fears are justified. And so I think that um, it really comes down to these things being evaluated on a um, case-by-case -case basis. That's what the law currently is in the United States. And hopefully, if we're successful, it will open a door to greater tolerance, to greater possibility. And that's why I ask all of you for, you know, our cases can be heard at um, 11 a.m. Uh, East Coast time on the 1st of November. And I'll ask all of you who would like to lend your support to lend positive thoughts because this case has the possibility of opening a doorway of consciousness and healing and goodness coming into the world that um, forces have been trying to keep closed now for a period of decades. And I think this country will be much better off if this kind of freedom is permitted and allowed. Well, I'd like to mention uh, Maria Sabina and Gordon Wasson for a second. And um, I think that what was particularly interesting about that one was that um, Gordon Wasson um, and his wife and uh, some other um, people were, were like uh, on a mystery trail. They were looking for the, uh, um, the magical mushroom that was mentioned in all those Aztec texts, but that had never really cropped up. And um, he believed that it was still there, and he went looking for it, and to cut a long story short, found it. And this was a major discovery. Teo Nana cattle, the uh, food of the gods, was uh, alive and well among the Mazatec in the middle of the 20th century. It had gone underground through 400 years of Spanish Inquisition and so forth. And, um, well, you know, um, uh, hooray for the underground. <laughs> and, um, you know, the underground is where things go when the, the mainstream gets hairy and, you know, survives 400 years and uh, does all kinds of stuff. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I love the underground. <laughs> and I feel completely happy. Uh, and, you know, the mainstream is kind of, uh, kind of boring. Um, I'd rather be overbooked in the underground. Um, so, you know, if uh, having that scene going, it almost kind of, it, it requires the mainstream to be hairy. Um, so I feel okay that, okay, you want to make plants illegal and do all kinds of, you know, ayahuasca is a source of intelligence. Um, um, but it's declared uh, illegal. You know, what does that, I mean, that's stupid. <laughs> um, 
you know, so the, the mainstream is stupid. Yeah, well, what else is new? You know? Um, so <clears throat> at that point, we, we might be in this 400-year uh, canyon. We might be there, but it's okay. It's okay. Um, another thing, the, the kind of uh, oil and vinegar problem about politics and psychoactive plants is that often when you consume these psychoactive plants, the last thing you want to do is go out and do politics. Um, you know, it, 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 it takes a, a special bird to actually, you know, go all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. It's true. Um, so, I'm trying to test your humility, you know. <laughs> How am I doing? <laughs> yeah, pretty good, pretty good. He's a living proof that it works <laughs> the, on the humility, you know. So, anyway. Um, all right. Well, so let's um, open it up. Okay, this gentleman right here. Sure. The, the question for the recording is um, the connection between the UDV and, and other um, churches that exist in, in Brazil. Um, the UDV's origin is from Brazil. Um, it is uh, organized in over 100 different uh, communities in Brazil where there is uh, temples established that are, there, that are established there. Um, it is uh, the largest of the organized religions uh, of the ayahuasca churches within Brazil, and it was instrumental in getting the Brazilian government to um, recognize and, and uh, accept the religious use of the, the tea in Brazil. And um, it was first brought to the United States in the late 1980s and uh, became organized as a legal church in this country in 1993 after the passage of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And there is a... Um, an alliance of ayahuasca-using churches in Brazil where um, maintain friendly relations and, and work for the, um, the shared interest that you know, they have of seeing that their right to religious practices is ensured. I'm just going to repeat the question for the uh, tape. Isn't it a bit limiting uh, in terms of class to, only, to, to have ayahuasca universities uh, in, in the Peruvian or Brazilian Amazon, which obviously only moneyed people um, could go to, and isn't that uh, unfair and would not make possible access to, to this uh, enlightening substance among the less well-endowed mass, less affluent masses? Grants. Grants. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, you know, actually there, there was a, a Canadian journalist who, who proposed that um, um, ayahuasca be made available to the Inuit youth who are having substance abuse problems and, 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 and who are having problems um, feeling connected with their own culture, with their land, with their myths and so on. And could ayahuasca possibly be used as a tool to kind of save a pretty desperate situation that has suicide, alcoholism, wife beating and so forth? Well, um, I think it's an interesting idea, and I think it could well work, if anything could work, because actually they sent generations of social workers up there, and nothing has worked. So like a last-ditch effort, yes. Um, but you know, setting it up, um, and visibly, we, we heard about uh, an Ecuadorian ayahuasca shaman who was up in Canada. I believe it was on an indigenous reserve that, that it happened. So I mean, it's actually already been happening. Uh, but it's and it's this uneasy terrain where you have to go through borders and you know and you have to deal with that. You, unfortunately, you know. Okay, over here. 
Oh, man, could you repeat okay. that? Okay. Um, <laughs> the question was basically about um, the issue of tobacco and, and tobacco and ayahuasca use being very intertwined in the Amazon, and obviously tobacco has posed many health problems. Here. Well, Here. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, the first thing that I feel like pouncing on that one, um, because it's not the same tobacco, you know, and, um, uh, and the difference is in a nutshell, the difference is in a nutshell is that um, the uh, uh, Virginian tobacco contains 18 times less nicotine. Um, it's calibrated so that it's just like going ram, ram, ram with a motorcycle, never actually putting the gear in. So you, you only get a, a, a vague nicotine hit, but not the full blast, because if you get a full nicotine hit, you don't feel like lighting up 20 minutes later, you know. Um, and so they, they build cigarettes so that 20 minutes later you actually feel like, like getting another one. Uh, and they put at least 100 uh, fearful molecules with names I, I won't uh, impose on you right now, but polyvinyl acetate and so forth, you know, that clearly burning them and taking them into your lungs is a bad idea. The, an interesting fact is that uh, Warao uh, tobacco shamans in the Amazon smoke cigars as big as my forearm and like, you know, five of them in one night and, and just hallucinating doses of nicotine, literally. And um, there is no known uh, lung cancer among these people. Note that they also uh, submitted to ritual and so it's contained in time you know, it happens at night, and it's not necessarily every night. And so the, there are no doubt toxins in the tobacco that burns there, even though it's grown organically and, and so forth. But the, the bombardment of toxins that uh, imposed on the DNA contained in the uh, cells, in the lung cells, uh, is limited. So actually, the double helix has time to repair itself between duplications. Whereas if you're every 20 minutes lighting up and bombarding your uh, lung cells with toxins, you uh, can, um, just when the DNA is doubling up, you can actually cause a breakage which becomes a mutation and that's how cancer occurs. Uh, it's interesting how little cancer there is among indigenous Amazonian people who consume huge amounts of tobacco. So even though this hasn't been studied and the question is why hasn't it been studied if we know how important tobacco uh, induced illness is. Um, but there is not an incidence, uh, a, a known incidence of cancer among indigenous Amazonian people. Uh, is that right? I know that with absolute certainty from my own direct experience. That one of the things that this reveals is the eternal nature of the spirit and the reality that we have inhabited this world many times and that we are part of the world. And so it, it instills a level of conscience over time in the right use that will allow someone to recognize a certain kind of responsibility to the world. One of the things that's really grown in me over the period of time that I've been um, blessed to be able to walk on this path is an increasing sense of responsibility, of understanding who I am in relationship to the natural world, in relationship to my community, in relationship to the future. And I, from my experience, I think it's one of the properties of, of this tea. Two questions are, one is the relationship or the difference or distinctions between peyote and ayahuasca for Jeffrey, and the other question is about darts for Jeremy. The traditional um, ayahuasca sacrament is prepared with two plants, one masculine, one feminine, and so it's the union of those two 
primary spiritual forces. The, the peyote medicine comes from one plant, which is a cactus, and is, is considered to be masculine in, in its um, spiritual essence. So the, 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 on a biochemical level, I've heard that there's been some research that's identified that what they say the active um, psychoactive molecule in peyote is mescaline, and the active psychoactive molecule within the ayahuasca or ayahuasca admixture is considered to be DMT or dimethyltryptamine. Um, one of the differences between those two is dimethyltryptamine is actually produced within the human brain. It's produced within the pineal gland. Um, mescaline is something that only exists in nature, but is uh, chemically they're very similar, and in terms of their uh, physiological effects, they're similar as well. About the darts, uh, you might want to look at that um, uh, the compilation called Shamans Through Time that Francis Huxley and I put together, and we deliberately put several classical texts on those darts in there, including Alfred Metro's text called Using Invisible Substances for Good and Evil. And Metro was the one who first noticed back in the 30s that uh, among Amazonian shamans, there, um, uh, they talk about uh, spirits, they talk about a magical substance that they keep in their stomachs, and they keep about, talk about projectiles. And uh, Metro pointed out that this is like a trilogy. There, these are three inseparable concepts or facets of the, the same phenomenon, clearly a multifaceted, complicated uh, phenomenon. Uh, Jean-Pierre Chaumet, a French anthropologist who's also in this collection of texts, um, pointed out that the etymology in Quechua for dart, is, the word is yachai, and it comes from the verb yacha, to know. Um, uh, and Luis Luna has also uh, written about, well, Icaros, and which are the magical songs. And he suggests in uh, an article that he published in 1992 on Icaros um, that the melodies that the shamans get from the spirits they see in their visions um, are uh, another manifestation of the dart magical substance spirit complex. So this is a pretty complex and obscure thing, but it's central to um, ayahuasca shamanism. Actually, I'll tell you a, a quick story that um, I once took some in uh, upstate New York and I had a very bad trip because the plant kept telling me, what am I doing here? What are these pine trees? This doesn't feel right. So everybody has different experiences. <laughs> yes, right there. They have different origins. They use the same two plants. Um, and they have different uh, body of theology and, and their rituals are slightly different. Um, but they... They, interestingly enough, they originate from pretty close to the same period in human history, um, from rubber tappers who encountered the use of the tea in the Brazilian Amazon. Um, I have a personal friend who was a rubber tapper from that same era who, when he first encountered the tea, it was called the cinema of the Indians. And uh, that was how it was introduced to many of these people who were rubber tappers within the forest. Within the Santo Daime religion, it was um, a man by the name of, um, what they speak of as Mestre Irineu, who received a vision of the, the mother of the forest, the Virgin Mary, and then he brought forth a series of sacred calls and songs to her that formed the foundation of the liturgy of the, of the Daime religion. And uh, the Unia de Vegetal was um, founded by a man by the name of José Gabriel da Costa, who we speak of as Mestre Gabriel, who, bought in, who brought a comprehensive theology about the the spiritual origin of, of life and um, 
the evolution of human consciousness over, over lifetimes. Um, so the question is about the commodification of ayahuasca if it becomes legal, legal here. I don't, you know, I don't see it becoming legal for any commercial purpose, and so I think that you could relate to him that, that, that this is a, a, sh a concern that we share as well. You know, the increased interest that Jeremy described at the beginning of the, this process in terms of the amount of interest. There are places where it is sold, where it is commercialized, and in many cases it's shaman themselves who are involved in the commercialization of it. So I don't think... Well, you know, step by step, I think that over time, the, the question that we've brought before the Supreme Court is how can they accommodate the, the religious use of a plant sacrament within the Native American church and deny the religious use of another plant sacrament that is similarly benign within the context of a different religion. But, the, um, so I, but, but for us, the plants are sacred as well. They're never sold. There's no commercial trafficking in it. And, uh, and within our churches, all the churches maintain their own plantations to meet the administer, you know, to administer to the needs of each of the religious communities. So we're, there's laws in Brazil at this point about the extraction of sacred plants from the forest. And I think that this, the greater threat to, this, to these plants is deforestation in terms of burning for cattle pastures, meat consumption, and, and, uh, and logging, much more than the, the use of people who want to use these plants in a religious way. Why don't you, yeah, you two who were there before, okay, go ahead. Um, so the, <laughs> the question um, is, uh, what are the risks when um, the, this case becomes uh, uh, noteworthy and in the front page of the newspapers in terms of the increased demand, perhaps, and uh, some of the problems that might be inherent in that? <laughs> like I said, this, I really wish that they hadn't, you know, pushed this in the way that they have. And the reality is that we, when we distribute our sacrament, we distribute with a tremendous amount of care. Um, and we, in terms of the trained leadership that we have in this country who would be able, the kind of the demand that we could attend to is still very small. And so we're not looking to, you know, grow exponentially and we don't honestly have the capacity to deal with, you know, a hundred million people if a hundred million people <laughs> became interested. All right, any, okay, right here. I was talking about the uh, we as a culture, you know, we Shipibo people and our culture will die if our knowledge is not taken seriously. It's all very well now that we have our territory, we can physically survive. But if we look into the mirror of the world and we can't see an image of ourselves reflected back, uh, that's what will kill us, just as surely as taking our land away from us will kill us. So that's why we need the recognition of our territories and of our knowledge systems and cultures. Um, so the question is, um, aren't Shipibo shaman very competitive with each other, and uh, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, definitely, and we're talking about darts. I mean, these are like dart zones, and um, you want to really be careful because sometimes you can get shot in the butt, you know? Even if you're just a gringo passing through town. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, you definitely want to keep on your toes. Um, um, yes, it's... Um, uh, you know, within the world of science, there's rivalries also between laboratories and scientists. And whenever you have knowledge and power, there's always these kind of power games, because we're, we're human beings, and that's how we seem to be wired for the moment anyhow. Um, so would the question be, what do we want to... I think, yeah, you know, that's what would be interesting about bringing science closer to shamanism. I think that science could actually help uh, calm down some of the paranoia and, and this... <laughs> 
you know, they're, they're like two, um, two shamans in a room or like two jaguars in a room. Um, but, you know, if we could have a few scientists milling around and a few, a, a few epistemologists and, and, you know, say, let's test this and we'll test your knowledge. And, yeah, I think science could, could maybe participate in, in making it less paranoid and more uh, democratic and open. But that would be in an ideal world. Um, we have very little time left, so I think, uh, unfortunately, what I'm going to do is just let Jeremy and Jeffrey say a few closing words, and then we're going to have to call it a day. But it's been really an interesting conversation and uh, great question, so thank you. Well, I, I thank for you for your respectful attention, and, and um, I'm, I'll be available afterwards if people you know, didn't have specific questions in related relationship to the, to the legal case that I could answer. That was one of my, one of my objectives in coming here today was kind of to take a cultural temperature, you know, to kind of see, at least from the reflection of this body of people, how people, what feedback people can give me about how they see this moment culturally and how they see the, the significance of, of this case. You know, my own feeling is, is that it's a pretty big deal, but I'm in the middle of it, so I may not be able to see things all that clearly. But I, I ask for people who have resonated with some of the ideas that we've talked about here to at least be aware that at 11 a.m. on November 1st at East Coast time and the Supreme Court of Washington, D.C., in Washington, D.C., that this uh, possibility for human evolution is going to be considered by um, nine justices who have been installed there by the Congress and the President of the United States. And uh, this may be one of the biggest decisions that's ever come before this court in relationship to our collective future. Um, the question was, we're not looking for a flood of letters to the court. We have dozens of amicus briefs that were filed properly, representatives of the Catholic bishops of North America, representatives of the American Civil Liberties Union, representatives of the National Council of Evangelical Christians, representatives of the Southern Baptist Convention, representatives of the Sikhs, the American Jewish Congress, dozens all in our favor, um, as well as scholars of world religion, Dr. Houston Smith, Dr. Carl Ruck, um, nine different amicus briefs on various different points of law, international organization scholars, all of them asking the Supreme Court to affirm religious liberty in our case. The, uh, there's a website which is www.udvusa.com and then uh, you can, we'll, we'll keep any postings there. All the briefs that have been filed in this case, including these nine amicus briefs that I described, are all there and a complete history of what's at issue here and what the legal issues are and what all the courts have decided so far, it's, it's pretty comprehensive. Um, I'd just like to say that um, I'm really happy that this uh, conversation uh, occurred and I think one of the problems um, so far has been that there just haven't been uh, conversations like this. It, it's kind of like when you have a, a trauma or a taboo, it's, um, it's, you know, once you can actually just, naming the problem is already half the solution. Um, but clearly, we're just learning to talk about how to use psychoactive plants and the politics of psychoactive plants. It is just coming back into Western culture. And so um, a lot more conversations like this clearly need to happen. But uh, thanks to the Bioneers for your allowing this forum to happen. Thanks to you in this room because your spirit has been good. Thanks to JP. You did a fine job. And um, 